This episode of Ask Paul Kirtley comes to you from a heated tent in the boreal forest in Canada. Welcome, welcome to episode 69 of Ask Paul Kirtley and as you can see I am in a lovely snow trekker tent. We have come to a wonderful area of the boreal forest um, from where we were when I recorded the last episode and we're up here exploring and camping and it's absolutely wonderful there's nobody else up here we've seen tracks of moose we've seen tracks of martin squirrels grouse um, ravens have come and checked us out it's been wonderful uh, the nature here is fantastic it's starting to warm up now i think it's been quite a warm march anyway um, they had a really cold uh, December through February, end of February here, but since we've been here it's actually started to warm up a bit. Um, the nights are still cold though. Uh, when we got out the tent this morning um, it was about minus 18. It's come up to a nice temperature. The skies have cleared today after a couple of cloudy days and it's a lovely sunny day outside. So I may well be uh, silhouetted against the uh, backdrop of the tent here. Um, and also the other thing I should say is if you are listening to this on a podcast, I don't have my audio gear with me. I've just got my small camera, um, but hopefully I'm in enclosed enough space here. It's a little bit breezy outside. Um, I didn't want any wind noise on the microphone, and this is a great environment for you to see. Um, if you're interested in uh, camping out in heated tents, there's a great um, article and downloadable PDF on my website at paulcurtley.co.uk. Um, articles called how to live in a heated tent I will link to it below the videos wherever you're watching this if you're watching it on paulcurtley.co.uk or YouTube I will link to that and you can get hold of that if you've not seen it before and a lot of the setup that you might be able to see around the frame of this um, shot at the moment where I'm sitting a lot of that is explained in more detail there so please check that out and if you're interested in what the hell am I doing up here apart from having a wonderful time camping which I love doing my two mates are off um, having a bit of a wander at the moment. Um, what are we doing here? Well, we are doing a recce for a future trip uh, with clients, with students, if you like. And if you're interested in potentially coming with me and my uh, colleagues who've been winter camping for many years and have been into boreal bushcraft for many years, um, if you'd like to come and do a trip with us, then please go to frontierbushcraft dot com forward slash winter and just leave your name and your email address there and when we've got um, some trips lined up we will email you with the details no hard sell just to let you know what we're doing um, it's exactly what we do with the canoe trips in the summer um, over here in Canada and they always sell out so there's no need for me to push that particularly hard they're great trips um, wonderful wilderness areas and we're looking forward to coming here in the winter as well and, and sharing what we know and how to operate in this environment with other people as well. So keep an eye out for that. Um, I've got a bunch of questions lined up as usual. Ironically, I don't think any of these have got, <coughs> excuse me, 
have got anything to do with winter camping but that's just the way it goes um, I line these questions up um, load them onto my phone we have absolutely no mobile phone reception here no cell phone reception we've got a sat phone with us um, but this is literally just being used as a notebook at the moment and I will bring up the episode 69 questions some of these are um, a little bit overlapping if you like I remember putting these together and thinking well that's similar to that one that one's similar to that one I'll put them all in one episode so my questions will maybe be somewhat overlapping but hopefully it all meshes together into a coherent whole um, I've got my hot coffee as usual I've made coffee on the stove with a little percolator and I've got my crusader metal mug is good for keeping warm on top of the stove and I'm good to go I'm just going to bring that uh, camera a little bit closer just in case just to make sure the audio is good and then I will answer your questions also give you a, a little look outside while I'm moving the camera have a look let the camera adjust those are our toboggans there you can see a bit of smoke wisping across from the from the tent stove chimney there toboggans end of the lake that we're on at the moment you can see some of our trails wonderful wonderful boreal forest environment absolutely stunning in this March sunshine right Good. So, first question. Military surplus versus non-military surplus. And this is a very broad question. This is from Carla, uh, K-A-L-A. And the question is, I have a question regarding military surplus items with bushcrafting. Are there any items you use or suggest to buy as military surplus and some items you would not recommend to buy as military surplus? best regards Carla um, it's a very broad question um, let's start close each of us here there are three of us here we've all got military surplus bivvy bags um, I'm using a Dutch army bivvy bag as is one of my colleagues they're very good for winter bivvying because they're big um, and they're also quite heavy duty would I use them for summer backpacking absolutely not I use um, either a normal MOD bag for a lot of what I do in the forest in the UK that's the UK military bivvy bag which I find quite lightweight for the size of it um, and pretty robust and not too expensive and I use that a lot if I want to go super lightweight I use the snug pack SF bivvy which is fantastically compact and lightweight I've made videos about that lightening the load uh, one lightening the load episode one and um, talking about lightening the load of your sleeping kit you can see um, more there um, about all of those bivvy bags and how they are comparing size and weight but I do rate a lot of the military surplus bivvy bags try and buy grade one so stuff that's in decent condition or even stuff that's brand new um, other military surplus things I've got here Swedish M90 um, 
over jacket parka very good for just throwing on when you're stopped on the on a lake or um, just stopped particularly when you're walking if you're pulling toboggans like we are you dress quite lightly and then maybe you stop you want to have a drink have a, a bit of a feed chuck that jacket on over the top um, mothership jacket really good um, they used to be relatively inexpensive I bought mine for about 20 22 25 pounds something like that which would be about $40 and um, I think they're a bit more expensive than that but they are very good and um, worth having I like those try and get a decent price on them other military surplus stuff that I use Swedish um, shirts as well you've seen me in those a lot in the summer they're swedish military shirts they cost about four or five pounds each they're really good value they're nice comfortable cotton um what else do i use swedish uh, military the bandanas the little uh, the cotton cloths they're good for as neckerchiefs they're good for as towels and um, they're good as uh, improvised triangular bandages and um, all sorts of improvised rough water filter all sorts of things you can use those for i like those um, but generally i don't use a huge amount of surplus kit i used to have you know like a dpm smock for knocking around in the woods in particularly when i used to do more air rifle shooting and that type of thing but generally um, I don't choose things on the basis of whether or not it's military or not. I know some people think oh, automatically it's military, it's great. And other people think automatically if it's military, it's not great. Um, it's over-engineered, it's too heavy, um, it makes, makes you look like a soldier. I understand both points of view. So I always look at it on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, one thing I probably would avoid buying is surplus boots because um, they tend to be tend to be knackered um, but um, yeah that's about I, I, I don't particularly like buying surplus sleeping bags I wouldn't recommend that try and buy a decent quality but inexpensive synthetic bag if you're buying um, a bag in a snug pack make some good ones for example and, and other people do too um, um we're going to come on to some other bits of kit there's a, i know there's a, a specific question about rucksacks coming up as well um and again yeah you can buy some surplus rucksacks but they tend to have been roughly treated a lot of issue kit isn't always that good if you've got any friends in the military <laughs> ask them what of their issue kit they find is good and what they find is rubbish that they replace themselves so you don't want to be buying stuff that the soldiers who are using them day in day out um don't think they're good um that's you know that's a good enough vote against something and um, so if it's something that gets replaced a lot that's probably a good sign that it's not great um, and that could be boots it could be rucksacks it could be um garments you know different units have different uh, flexibility in terms of replacing their kit or adding their personal kit into things so that's always something to look at but generally again like all kit and i think it's got nothing to do with bushcraft it's just a general point um like i used to do mountain i used to wear some dutch army um cotton trousers for summer mountain walking that i used to summer backpacking that i used to really like quite light used to dry quite quickly and quite cool um back in the days when i didn't have a lot of money and couldn't buy more technical garments um just look at it from an engineering point of view what do you need the thing to do how light does it need to be how durable does it need to be how long does it need to last and um, does it matter if it's camouflage some places you don't want to be going looking like a soldier you'll be mistaken for a mercenary and um, depends where you're going what you're doing how light does it need to be how tough does it need to be how does it fit in with the rest of the gear and if you look at it from that perspective then you can integrate it with all the rest of your equipment
Okay, so this is another very similar question, but it's more specific. This is from Blake, and his question is, Hi Paul, I've listened to your podcast for a while now, but I was wondering what is better in your expert opinion? Surplus or non-surplus backpacks? Thanks, Blake. Um, if we're talking about the same model that's surplus or non-surplus, if you're looking at a particular model of backpack, then you might get a good deal by routing through a surplus store, finding something that's been used, lightly used, um, in good condition. It's the rucksack you want, and you might get a bargain. So that's a good that's a good reason for looking at surplus. If you've decided that you want a particular type of rucksack that you could buy new or you could buy surplus, have a look and see if you can get a surplus one in good condition. Um, if, if it's a more general point, military versus non-military, military backpacks tend tend um, to be relatively heavy compared to civilian backpacking backpacks and so weight is always an issue particularly particularly for a civilian because you're probably not as young as highly physically trained or regularly carrying the backpack as the military guys so it's it's easy to look at the military guys and kind of go well those guys know what they're doing I'm just going to buy what they've got um, and that can sometimes be a bit of a fallacy for the reasons that I've said you know they're running around wearing those things all the time they're young they're fit and they get used to it um, I would always try and minimize the weight of anything and that may mean looking at non-military backpacks um, looking at uh, backpacks these days you can get really nice lightweight backpacks from a range of different manufacturers that are designed for long distance hiking look at the packs that people are using for things like the Appalachian Trail Pacific Crest Trail you know multi-day hikes and um, multi-stage hikes where they're getting resupplied along the way the backpack needs to be light and also it needs to last a reasonable amount of time and it you know ideally it lasts that hike you know the season that they're doing that through hike and there's some really you know modern materials some really good lightweight tough modern materials well engineered well thought out backpacks and i'd be looking there as well and again going back to the previous question it's an engineering question what do you need it to do how light does it need to be how tough and durable does it need to be um and look at the experience of people who are using those things and make a decision based on that. So I, I can't say for sure that surplus backpacks, you know, or military backpacks versus non-military backpacks um, are the best. Um, you know, I've got a, a Berghaus um, Vulcan rucksack that I've had for years, which I like for ski touring in the winter. It's not that heavy. It's quite tough. I can get all my gear in it. Um, I know some military units used that. I've no idea whether they still do. I use a Sabre 45 um, rucksack, which I've got here as a day pack. Sometimes in the summer, use that as a backpack for for my summer backpacking. Here, I'm using it as a day pack. Um, that is is used by military units. Um, and then I've got others. I've got like Crux, um, Berghaus, uh, various other, you know, Norina rucksacks, which are non-military. I think it just depends on what you need, um, how light or tough it needs to be. Um, and go from there and, and it's kind of ir irrelevant then whether it's used by the military or not as I say if you decide on one that you think oh, I really like that design see if you can get one that's lightly used secondhand that's always good whether it's military or civilian all right next question this one is on rucksacks again so you can see why I kind of grouped these questions all together 
This is from Dale. And Dale asks, Hi Paul, really enjoy the YouTube channel. You give great tips and advice. I don't currently practice much bushcraft yet. I enjoy hiking and I am looking to do a long hike trip over several days but need a bigger pack than my day pack. So I would like to know what pack you prefer to use on expeditions and what you think about an external frame pack versus an internal frame pack as I've heard pros and cons for both. Um, well, there are pros and cons to external frames versus internal frame. External frame packs were all the rage back in the 60s and 70s for sure, but then there's been a move away from them. Um, I think if you're carrying very heavy rucksack loads, then an external frame pack can still have an advantage. And I know some old school guys will still swear by external frame packs. I know Lofty Wiseman in his book talks about external frame packs. I know some guys up in the northwest of uh, the United States that I'm in touch with, and they're uh, very much they like their old school external frame packs because that's what they've always used and that's fine I think you need to use stuff that you're familiar with and happy with but there are some very good internal frame packs now as well both in terms of you know what we've been talking about military and non-military packs a lot of them are internal frame packs and they're good they're lightweight they're somewhat more contained which can be good for pushing through close country you know pushing through um, tight trails and what have you and they can also be somewhat more comfortable although some people would say the external frame packs are more comfortable so I think to an, ex to an extent it's what you're used to um, like anything. Um, I would recommend having a look at the blog of somebody like um, Chris Townsend who's been on my podcast um, has done a lot of long distance backpacking and he gets access to a huge amount of kit for kit reviews and testing for uh, TGO magazine the great outdoors and he also unlike a lot of UK based uh, kit testers he is also open-minded and because he's done a lot in the United States Appalachian Pacific Crest all of those continental divide trails he has a real good eye for the backpacks that are suitable for that type of long-distance hiking and I would have a look at Chris Townsend's blog um, I know I look at it for um, keeping up to date with that side of things um, he has a lot more experience with different types of kit um, than I do for that type of thing um, because he's just got access to it and he's done those long-distance trails so definitely have a look at his blog I will link it below here um, I believe it's christownsend.com but don't quote me on that I will put the the link uh, under this and also check out the podcast that I did with him I will link that in the YouTube video and I will link that below because he's got lots of tips in there about walking um, long distance backpacking which I think you'll find useful even if you're doing shorter stuff than you know those multi-month long trails you can think about those chunked up into you know week long or 10 day long sections between resupplies um, that's a normal uh, for most people a more normal distance for doing a longer trip um, and it's those longer trails are a series of those stitched together in effect so those tips all carry over even if you're going out for four five six seven ten days they all carry over and um, so check check that podcast out as well and I think you'll find all of that very useful and then
pack size variables <laughs> so we've got more on backpacks this is from Paul Bonner in Canada and his question is what are your thoughts regarding pack size bigger the pack the greater the space and space either not being used or the temptation to add more gear smaller pack assists in streamlining equipment needs but is also limiting i've watched your videos on packing equipment etc and it seems with the saber 45 and additional pockets that this is your preferred choice for pack size for most camping trips the additional plc pockets give you a 70 litre pack when desired i have a kelty red wing 50 litre i really like for short trips I have a smaller day pack as well. Years ago, I purchased a 7200 uh, CU Indana Astroplane pack, which is great for any wilderness adventure, but size and weight at nine pounds is sometimes overkill. Other than my day pack, I would really like to just go with one pack and make it do for my wilderness tripping adventures. Appreciate your thoughts on this maybe others struggle with this issue when packing thanks so much really appreciate your expertise paul bonner well that kind of overlaps with some of the previous questions paul um i don't necessarily think that you're going to get one pack that does everything all the time that you're out unless you're only out at certain times of the year and i don't know whether you're intending to be out year round or whether you're just intending to be out in the summer i know you're in Canada and I've had some contact with you before and I'm pretty sure that you like getting out in the winter and if you're using a backpack in winter I tend to use backpacks for ski touring um, you need them to be quite big because everything gets stiffer and more awkward to pack and also if it's cold you don't want to be messing around trying to pack things really tightly like some sort of game of tetris into your backpack that's really specific and you have to get everything right and you end up with really cold hands doing that and wasting a lot of time so i think just a slightly bigger rucksack than you'd use normally to fit that gear in it's all well and good you know really working out how you pack everything in your living room when you're nice and warm but doing it in a cold cabin or getting out of a snow shelter or a cold tent um, or getting things in and out your rucksack when you're out in in the cold at the ambient temperature you need a bigger rucksack you want to be able to get things in and out there quickly and you still want it to be balanced well you can still get quite big rucksacks that are relatively light um, and then it's also discipline then about not putting too much in them if you're using it at a different time yeah so you could get a somewhat bigger rucksack maybe 70 to 80 litre rucksack that would be great for winter ski touring winter snowshoe touring um that you can get a you know it's not all just about weight you know a winter sleeping bag is bulky whether it's down or synthetic um winter over jackets that you might put on when you're stopped are bulky because they need to be warm they need to um be able to trap the air and keep you warm um and you need the room for that it doesn't necessarily mean it's massively massively heavy but it's going to be more bulky you know you can have a down sleeping bag a down jacket um down booties for when you're in the tent all of those things they take up room they're not necessarily super heavy um but you need a room for them and you wouldn't have to have that room in the summer so you need more room and then you've got the issue that i talked about of needing a bit more room to make things easy in the winter as well so 
if you're starting from the point of view of only needing one rucksack then I would get something that works for your winter gear but then make sure it's as lightweight as possible without that being a detriment to the durability in the winter and then just be disciplined about what you put in it in the summer um, and you know that's that's down to your self-discipline you don't have to put gear in it you can you can reduce the gear and then also the other thing to say about a bigger rucksack is that you then do have the option of going on a longer trip in the summer because you can get more food in it remember food takes up a lot of room and a lot of weight if you want something with a good um, harness good hip belt something that's going to put the weight into your hips and then you know if you want to do a short trip you can you just cinch it all down you don't put so much gear in it um, and food in it and if you want to do a longer trip you can put more food in it and you've still got the same rucksack yes I do use the Sabre 45 which is over there as I say I'm using it as a day pack here there's no side pockets on it I think it's a really good winter hiking day pack whether it's snowshoeing in this environment or out from camp or whether it's mountain walking in the UK or parts of North America it's a good uh, winter day pack because you can get a lot of stuff in it you know 45 50 liters is a good size i've got also got a crux uh, ak47 rucksack which is a similar volume it's just a bit taller and thinner um, that i quite like for winter uh, mountain walking winter mountaineering really there's no real such thing as mountain walking in the winter um and that's good as well similar size to the saber 45 both good and um I think that's the way you're going to have to go if you want one rucksack. Um, I certainly couldn't do a winter ski touring camping trip out of a Sabre 45. It's just too small. Um, and I don't always use it for backpacking. Um, anyway, I like it in the woods. That is the rucksack I work out of a lot. So when I'm going into the woods, I'm setting up a camp for me personally. I've got everything I need and then I'm going to run a course, that's the pack I take and I can keep organised with it. Um, woodland walking, I like it. In the mountains, I'll tend to use something that's a bit taller and thinner that doesn't have side pockets simply because I had a really interesting experience a long time ago with a rucksack with side pockets on high up in the mountains above Glen Affric in Scotland and it was very windy. And the wind was catching my, coming in, catching my side pockets. And I was on a very steep zigzagging trail. And every time I changed direction, the wind caught me. And it was quite hairy. And ever since then, I've tried to try to avoid side pockets high up in the hills because um, I don't like them. Um, and I also know uh, people who are, for example, in mountain rescue who don't like side pockets because they get in the way of doing things with ropes, etc. Um, so it depends what you're doing, um, but I would say if you just want to generally be out year round, get something that works for you in winter and then just have the discipline not to put too much in it in the summer. And I agree, nine pounds or, you know, two point whatever kilograms that that is, is getting on the heavy side. I had a 70 litre rucksack that was 2.3, 2.4 kilograms a few years ago and I sold that because it was just too heavy for the volume. You can get a, you know, 70, 80 litre rucksack. Again, going back to what I was saying about lightweight, lightweight um, long distance backpacking, you can get some very good packs now that are not too heavy that are in the 1.5 to 1.75 at most kilogram range that have got all the volume that you'll ever need and again check out chris townsend's blog because he's always putting stuff up there and um that is it on 
that sort of intermeshing thing about rucksacks and military surplus um, and all of that that we've 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 got through all right next question cleaning stainless steel water bottles this is from Gary Gary Buglass and he says Paul now that I'm subscribed to your videos, I'm loving the high level advice that you give. I recently bought a 38 ounce stainless steel Nalgene wide top water bottle and have been using soap and water to clean it. However, every three or four weeks, I pour in some white wine vinegar with water about 50-50 mix and let it soak and rinse around before cleaning out again with fresh water and a scrubbing brush. Is this a suitable method for sterilizing stainless steel water bottles as I normally use baby bottle disinfectant for my plastic bottles but as you know this is not suitable for stainless bottles. Would appreciate your experience and thoughts. Thanks in advance. Gary. All right. Um, first off it kind of depends what you're putting in them Gary. Um, what are you putting in those bottles? Um, if you're just putting water in and the water's clean and potable, it's, it's safe to drink, then the main introduction of bacteria is really going to be bringing your mouth to it and maybe just some environmental stuff dropping in when you've got it open. It's not going to get that dirty that quickly and if you're using it regularly and flushing it through regularly, it's going to be fine um, most of the time. Um, if you're treating um, the water in the bottle with uh, chlorine, iodine chlorine dioxide which are the standard you know different methods of using uh, ch chemicals to disinfect water depending on what you're doing it beforehand and various other methods which I won't get into here um, but that will disinfect the bottle as well you know any pathogenic organisms that are in there are going to be killed off by those um, suitable methods because that's why you're using them um, and so that's going to keep it clean in itself so the the times when you have issues with water bottles is if you're putting a lot of food in there and by food i mean any, anything from a cordial gatorade isostar um isotonic type drink mixture fruit juice you're putting sugar in there and bugs like to grow on that type of thing you're providing food for things to grow and then of course mold potentially you've got to be more um fastidious then about scrubbing it out um i find uh, for all of my bottles whether i'm whether it's sig bottles the aluminium sig bottles with the um with a narrow opening stainless steel um plastic i find having a bottle brush really useful just to get in there and clean um I will just use washing up liquid if I've been if I'm if I've been using it and I've had food in it I've had coffee in the same with same with same with stainless steel vacuum flasks for hot drinks this has got coffee in it at the moment um, had Gatorade in it yesterday when I get back from this trip that will um, be cleaned out and I will use um, I'll just use regular washing up liquid um, I'll give it a I'll rinse it out first washing up liquid in there I'll let it soak for a little while and then I will get the bottle brush in there and give it a good scrub around and then I'll rinse it out to make sure all the um, all the detergent is out of there all the washing up liquid and if I wanted to sterilize it then with a stainless steel with a metal thing 
there's absolutely no issue with just putting boiling water in. I, I used to do that with plastic bottles as well. I used to do a lot of cycling. And one of the problems that cyclists get is that they get stomach bugs with uh, dirty bottles. And so I was quite fastidious about cleaning my bottles and I would just sterilize them with hot water. Um, you know, just put a, a boil water, pour it in, let it sit. That will kill anything that's in there. Um, and then put your drink in afterwards. So if you wanted to sterilize a metal, um, stainless steel, vacuum flask or non-vacuum flask, you can put hot water in and that will kill things off. If you want to sterilize it with chemicals, just use a chlorine tablet. Well, that will work well, unless you put some absolutely filthy, dirty creek water in there that might have, say, giardia in or something, and you haven't disinfected it uh, you know, at all um, before the water's gone in there. Um, chlorine will be fine, otherwise use chlorine dioxide. Um, is probably the best bet for everyone who's listening to this because you can't always get iodine everywhere and it doesn't always work against cryptosporidium and some giardia apparently doesn't work against these days. <laughs> but again, we're getting too much into the water purification there. But the point is, um, I don't think you, you know, unless you're, if you're using it every day, you're flushing it out. Yes, you might get a buildup of food if you're putting a lot of food in there. Clearly, if you put hot soup in a flask or something, then you're going to need to give it a good clean out. But generally, um, just soap and water, wash it out, hot water is fine. Um, if you really want to go the extra mile, um, chuck a water purification tablet in there and leave it and then and then empty it out and that'll be sterilized, it'll be fine. And then use your white wine vinegar for uh, making a nice salad. Um, that would be, uh, <laughs> that would be what I'd be doing. Nice salad dressing. Raven. Don't know if you can hear it on the audio. Another water purification question. This is from, who's this from? Matt. This is from Matt. Hi Paul, I recently went for a day paddle in my canoe on a nearby waterway where I started at the mouth of a creek opening to the ocean, then went around 12 kilometers upstream to the source lake. Whilst paddling, I got thinking about what I would need, what would need to be done to treat the water for drinking at various points along the way. Obviously close to the ocean, there'd be lots of salt in the water and would need some form of desalination. But would this still be necessary the further you went upstream? Is there a point when salt water turns fresh? Or is it a case of once brackish, always brackish? Throwing in a cheeky bonus question, what method would you use to treat water if you were doing a similar journey? As always, I greatly appreciate the quality content you contribute to the community. And that's from Matt on the Gold Coast in Queensland in Australia. Um, oh, this milk crate's not great that I'm sitting on. I prefer Wanigans, but we've got a milk crate here. Um, yeah, I mean, if it's salty water, you're going to have to desalinate it. There's no two ways around that. Um, yes, you can get reverse osmosis pumps, but they're somewhat overkill for a day paddle. Um, as to the question as to whether or not it will turn fresh, it depends on the gradient and it depends on the tidal reach of the area of the water system that you're in. I know in some places, you know, where you've got sort of extensive mangrove swamps and things, salt water can go a long way back inland. Um, 
it also depends on what the water table is doing where you are um, you said you go you went back up to a source lake now presumably that's fresh water unless it's tidal all the way in um, so at some point depending on you know where the tide comes into and the gradient of the stream of the creek from where it starts to where it finishes there is going to be some uh, transition between salt water and fresh water where that is I, I don't know so it, every every river is different so some rivers you get salt water coming a long way back in and other rivers it's only a short distance like the Spey for example that we paddle in Scotland because it's quite steep um, it's fresh water to within a couple of hundred meters of the end and then you're into Spey Bay and you're into salt water and the, the when the tide comes in it only comes so far back in and not very far up the river whereas other rivers are much more slack they're much more slow salt water will come further in and the tidal uh, reach is much further up so it kind of depends on where you are and the specifics of that particular creek and the lay of the land where you are um, I wouldn't be if I was paddling inland to fresh water I wouldn't be trying to treat the salt water at the beginning of the journey I would take some fresh water with me and then further in um, where the fresh water was if I was going to treat that any of the usual methods um, that work for uh, fresh water whether that's uh, coarse filtration and boiling coarse filtration and chemical sterilization or um, coarse filtration microfiltration and chemical sterilization they're the kind of bomb proof methods that I use I've written about those um, in various places I've written about the problems you can get with water and how to deal with them on my blog and I will link to um, the first of those articles below this uh, video and that will help you more there Matt and anybody else interested in that question more wood in the fire. Ravens flying around again as well. Keep the stove ticking over. question and ironically this is about Mediterranean climate bushcraft kind of funny that I'm up in the boreal in winter this is from William and his question is hi Paul I'm soon moving to Portugal and wondering if you might have any recommendation on books or other sources of information on bushcraft in a Mediterranean climate I've seen nothing so anything would be helpful William Well, that's a, that's a that's a good question on a number of levels because it allows us to talk about different aspects of bushcraft. There's a range of techniques which are applicable 
anywhere. Um, it's not like all of a sudden you've got completely different ways of lighting fires or making cordage or making shelters you know the methodologies the the fundamental techniques are the same if you're moving from the UK or Germany or anywhere around Europe if you move to Portugal your techniques you're going to use are pretty much the same if you were moving to Fiji or uh, Hawaii then maybe you might be moving from bow drill to fire plow for example but gen so that's the kind of different technique that I'm talking about but generally your friction fire lighting your fire lighting methods your water purification your natural navigation um, cordage making shelter building all of, the, all of those things are going to be the same what's going to be different are the resources you might use to achieve those things different tree species different plant species different considerations in terms of fire safety drier climate etc etc um, but fundamentally it's the same even the sky that's going to be over you is going to be similar um, if you're in the northern hemisphere anywhere what you'll see in Portugal is very very similar um, in terms of Mediterranean climate, it's quite varied. Clearly, you've got Southern Europe, and then you've got the Middle East, and then you've got North Africa, and you know all around. So everything from you know uh, Portugal, you can have the Atlantic coast of Portugal, through to uh, the beaches uh, or at the far end, at the at the uh, eastern end of the of the Mediterranean. Um, so you know Israeli type territory you've got the Sinai down in the bottom uh, right hand corner if you like then you're all around through North Africa um, and right round to pretty much the the coast where the coast of uh, West Africa comes up and meets the coast of North Africa so you've got quite a range of different uh, terrains and climates there but a lot of the species will will carry on through and round um, tree species in particular plant species although there will be gradations in different places and there will be different levels of irrigation different levels of rainfall different levels of um, aridity in different places aridness um, and I would look to you know everything from you know parts of Portugal you're going to draw from more northern European um, tree and plant identification and uses um, as you move east you might be looking at um, you know what do they do what what do they do in Greece what, what are the traditional skills in Greece what are the traditional skills in Turkey um, what military manuals from Israel might you be able to get hold of um, in terms of survival you know what do the Bedouin do in the Sinai what do local people do in North Africa all of that knowledge is out there but yes it may not all be in one book but there is plenty of sources of information and I think you know if you really want to go deep you can you can delve into all of those um, all of those things you know what did you know skills from Sicily skills from southern Italy you know there's there's, there's loads of traditional uh, skills and still some very rural places where people are still relying on their knowledge of nature in in various different ways um, hunting skills trapping skills um, finding water in that environment um, knowledge of the trees and the plants you can piece that together but no there, there probably isn't one single book um, but I would say look at military survival manuals 
look at extrapolating from what you know from further north in Europe um, and that will particularly for Portugal um, that will that will help um, a lot I would say and then you can build from that in terms of your knowledge of local flora and fauna as well um, an experiment you know use the basic skills and experiment you know if you know how to bow drill just go and look at what the common woods are common widespread woods where you are and just try it you know spend a few days trying different woods and you'll find you'll quickly find out what works fibrous plant materials they're even if you don't know what the species are you can recognize them you can recognize different fibrous plant materials and you can go well that that looks like it might be good for a tinder bundle that looks like it might be good for cordage and experiment with it if you know the basic technique of laying up cordage or making a bird's nest type tinder bundle to take an ember to flame you can experiment and that's the value of learning those core skills those elementary wilderness bushcraft skills and then layering on local tree and plant identification knowledge on top of that as well as tapping into local uh, traditional knowledge where it exists where you are and then of course don't don't forget you know a lot of the time military uh, people in an area that are operating an area have assimilated and codified and brought all of that stuff together in terms of a basic level of being able to operate for um a reasonable amount of time until they get back to safety in that environment so don't don't forget to look for that as well so thank you william for that question that brings us to the end of this episode of ask paul Kirtley, which of course is the show where i answer your questions on wilderness bushcraft survival skills and outdoor life in general the best of my ability and uh, my experience in particular try and bring that to bear both in terms of how i think about things as well as how i do things and i will always try and put you on to good other resources as well like chris townsend's blog you should check that out for all of that backpacking stuff in particular long distance walking he is very very good and experienced with that stuff as I say, if you're interested in joining me for a boreal wilderness experience in the winter in future, please go to frontierbushcraft.com. That's frontierbushcraft.com forward slash winter. Add your name and your email address there, and I will email you with further details as and when I have them to share with you. So hopefully, you will be here with us at some point some of you in the future that are watching this that would be great um yeah we're here for a few more days and then we're heading back to the uk um via winnipeg and um looking forward to visiting the museum there again um some of you will have seen a video that i did about visiting the winnipeg museum at the end of a blood vein canoe trip that we did um up here a few years ago um my colleagues have not been there before so i'm looking forward to taking them there and having a look around again um great displays there of natural history uh native uh, skills and native life uh and the hudson's bay company as well there's some great stuff in there in the manitoba museum in winnipeg so we're looking forward to doing that at the end of this trip um but we've got a few more days in the boreal forest yet um we've got a we've got another night here and then we've got a walk <coughs> walk back to um, the cabin um, where we were based in the first half of the trip 
and then we're going to pack up the gear and then there'll be a plane coming in to pick us up um, light aircraft it'll be a number of flights backwards and forwards to get um, the three of us and the gear out and then we're staying uh, locally and then we're driving back to Winnipeg and so yeah it's a bit of a uh, uh, an extraction um, but worth it for being in this wonderful environment and um, we are in um, about 40,000 square kilometers of wilderness and we're told we're likely that we're the only three people in here um, which is quite spectacular something the size of Norfolk in the UK if you'd imagine that um, the county of Norfolk which is quite a big county this is bigger than that and we are the only three people here uh, gives you some idea of the scale of this landscape and it's a privilege to be here and to be spending some time here and I look forward to sharing more of this both in terms of online uh, materials as well as some of you in person I hope uh, going forward so until then uh, well at least until the next Ask Paul Kirtley um, enjoy what you're doing enjoy your outdoor life stay safe and speak to you soon cheers